0: This CBF podcast conversation is presented to you by Fuller Seminary. Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry offers a practice-focused theology education. Study online or on campus and learn from Fuller's seasoned scholar practitioners and apply what you're learning to your own context. Whatever your ministry goals, Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry will help you take the next steps in your vocation. For more information, visit fuller.edu backslash m-a-t-m degree that's fuller.edu backslash m-a-t-m degree
1: since 2016 cbf has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter these stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the united states and the world We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support.
0: This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work in renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. We are excited, as always, for you to join the conversation with us each week. Each week, we have over 40,000 people touching the podcast with iTunes and SoundCloud and social media and the various dot-coms that the episode is posted. But we will also want to invite you to join the conversation in a new way. We want you to join this CBF podcast listener support project. And you actually get to join me in an upcoming interview. Imagine this year alone, Walter Brueggemann, Philip Yancey, Brian McLaren, Jim Wallace, Margaret Feinbaum, Ruth Haley Barton, and Miroslav Volf. Yeah, imagine yourself joining an interview. So visit cbf.net backslash podcast support. This week's CBF podcast conversation is brought to you by CBF Advocacy. CBF Advocacy is excited to announce two advocacy and action opportunities in 2020. Advocacy in Action will be returning to Washington, D.C. on March 9th through the 12th, 2020. After a wonderful event in New York City, CBF's Advocacy's annual event will include popular staples such as participation meetings with congressional offices and opportunities to hear about advocacy efforts with CBF partners in Washington. In 2020, Advocacy in Action will include more experiential opportunities, including a special tour of the National Museum of African American History and Culture. Registration for this event will be capped at 60 and opens September the 30th, 2019. Visit cbf.net backslash advocacy in action for more information about housing options, registration, and event details. For the first time ever, CBF's Advocacy is happy to announce a regional Advocacy in Action event in conjunction with CBF Heartland. Advocacy in Action Heartland will be February the 8th through the 10th, 2020 in Jefferson City, Missouri, co-hosted by CBF Heartland, First Baptist Jefferson City, CBF, and Word and Way. With a focus on equipping individuals to advocate for their state and local governments and finding alternatives to payday loans, Advocacy in Action Heartland promises to be an event you won't want to miss. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Oz Guinness. Oz has authored over 30 books, including his most recent Carpe Diem Redeemed and The Last Call for Liberty. He's an outspoken social and political critic, a senior fellow at the Oxford Center for Christian Apologetics, and the founder of the Trinity Forum. Oz, thank you for joining the conversation.
2: Well, my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Now, for many of us listening, uh, we've read your books, uh, but often we don't know the person behind the words. Uh you had a unique start to your life. You were born missionary parents in China. Take, take us back to there and, and walk us through a little bit of your journey.
2: Well, I can't describe from first-hand experience the day I was born. But I was <laughs> born in the middle of, middle of World War II in China. The Japanese had invaded and 17 million had been killed in that war. And we were in north-central China. And uh, when I was very small, I don't remember this myself, We were in a terrible famine in which 5 million died in three months. My mother was a surgeon, but there was no food, no medicine. And we had to join a stream of refugees, probably 10 million people on the road looking for food. And uh, fortunately, we eventually got out of China, but came straight back in after the end of the war. And we lived then in Nanking. So I was there. And I do remember that period during the last five or so years of the Chinese nationalist government and then the revolution, which was 70 years ago this year. I remember my dad saying to me in January, son, we're in trouble. Chiang Kai-shek has just flown to Taiwan. In other words, the leader of nationalist China had got out. And uh, three months later or so, I think it was May, Then Bao and the Red Army marched in to nanking which was then the capital and the revolution climax the reign of terror began and the vicious persecution of the church so that latter part i do remember well it's funny you say you don't remember the day of
0: your birth i often try to remind my mom that i thought she said that the clouds opened up you know a great sunbeam <laughs> came down and you know declared this is this is my gift to you um uh, you know, you're you have kind of a a unique name. From what I understand, you were actually named after the great Oswald Chambers.
2: I was, but I've never appreciated the name. Oh, gosh. Uh, it's an old-fashioned name, and it's easily translated into various teases, and so I never appreciated it growing up. And then when I was in my twenties, I was lecturing once in London with my wife there. And the lady came up to me at the end. And she said, I, I gather you're named after my father. And it was Kathleen Chambers, Oswald Chambers' daughter. And I, I said to her, to be honest, I admire your father and read your father a lot. He's, he's an extraordinary writer. But I don't actually like the name. And she <laughs> laughed and she said, nor did he, <laughs> which made it better for me ever
0: since. Oh, wow. Now, now um as I said at the beginning, um, you've, you've written quite a lot, I mean, over, over 30 books. Um, as you look back at uh, the many words you've penned, uh, you know, is there a specific book, if you were honest, was the most painstaking to write?:
2: um, I'm not sure I could answer that, just I'm not the greatest writer, but each time, some message. Some argument has been on my heart like a heavy burden, and I've had to get it out, and I do so. So the first draft for me is always hard work. You know the old saying that writing a book is the nearest that a man comes to having a baby. You know, it can be nine months of incredibly hard labor, uh, but joy at the end when it's finished. So the first draft of writing for me is always hard, although I love the second draft when you're adding pepper and salt and quotations and editing your own work and so on. That's fun. But the first draft is hard work, but I can't think that any one book was, in that sense, worse than the others.
0: Hmm. Uh, you know, as you think about, I mean, you, you just you, you spilled out a couple of books even just this year. Where, where do you continue to find your creative energy to write?
2: Well, who knows? <laughs> Hopefully some... Thing that come as inspiration from the Lord, and then also the extraordinary challenge of the times we're living in. You know, with the Western world in decline and America, the world's lead society, facing its deepest crisis since the Civil War, you know, and living here in Washington, D.C., with the deep, deep polarizations, um, there's just too much to write about. So i am never at a loss. I have never experienced writer's block, to put it mildly.
0: (laughs) It's kind of like comedians, you know, they never run out of stupid people doing stupid things in the world uh, to to talk about. Uh, Now, now some of us are born critics, others of us choose to go into this vocational journey. So how did you get into um, being asked to commentate on society and politics and, and faith?
2: Well, I came to faith in Christ in 1960. And of course, the sixties were an extraordinary decade with the rise of the counterculture and all the turbulence, everything that centres around drugs, sex, rock and roll, and so on. And the sixties, looking back, were extraordinarily important for where we are today. That's another story. But it was in that decade, coming to faith, that one was challenged to make sense of all that's going on. So I was then at uh, London University. And we had wonderful Christian teachers, John Stott, Martin Lloyd-Jones, Jim Packer, people like that. And so we had rich, deep theology to, to lead us in growth and faith. But no one taught us how to make sense of the 60s, um, Bergman films, and all that was going on around us. And so when I met Francis Schaeffer for the first time, it was genuinely revolutionary in my life because he encouraged people to think about anything and everything within the context of faith under the lordship of christ and the light that it threw on life was absolutely remarkable so when you say critic i'm not here primarily as a critic although things that are wrong i hope i'm fearless in criticizing but my concern is to make sense of the extraordinary times in which we're living, in order, as it said for the men of Issachar in in the Old Testament, to read the signs of the times to know what course Israel should follow. In other words, the whole point is to know where we are, to know what we should do. But then of course in the light of that, to try and share the extraordinary relevance of faith in Jesus. So those two things have always been uh, important for me, you could put it in two words if you like: analysis and apologetics.
0: Well, I guess it's it's all about how you you view the word critique. Uh, you know, I wouldn't necessarily view it in a negative connotation. I mean, it's it's giving a an analysis an assessment of of something going on. I, I think you would make the you could make the argument that the our Old Testament prof, <laughs> prophets were critics. Uh, Jesus himself was a critic. So I, I didn't necessarily mean that in a, in a negative way, but um, you know, a positive way, somebody who's willing to step out yeah. and, and to speak about uh, what they're seeing. Now, one thing is clear, you know, we live in such a divisive time, and, and the civility of social discourse seems to be at an embarrassing low. Um, what do you make of, of our current level of civility?
2: Well, the real question is, what do I make of the the polarization? Believe that on one side for a moment. If you think of various modern philosophies, such as, say, postmodernism, God is dead, truth is dead, everything's reduced to power. Well, clearly, there are no grounds at all for civility. In other words, civility assumes and requires a high view of human dignity. So everyone made in the image of God is worthy of respect. And their viewpoint worth listening to and the respect for freedom of conscience for example so you have a high view of human dignity and you have a high view of truth so we're after truth rather than victory you know in debate and so you put a whole number of things like that into play and you can see that there's nothing in the postmodern climate of thought that encourages civility now of course that's disastrous but the deeper question is why we're divided Now, for many
0: of our listeners, uh, local church ministers, academics, um, folks that are involved in the community, and, and they see uh, the polarization, uh, as, you, as you brought up, so what do you recommend to our listeners about starting healthy dialogue within their communities and with those that are, are very different from them, uh, you know, ethically speaking, politically speaking, theologically
2: speaking? Well, I think you've got to ask, what's the cause of the division? You know, I've been in conferences in the last month about the division, which, in my mind, never got anywhere close to seeing what the polarization was. And people were trying to root it back in problems in neuroscience and stuff like that, which I thought was absolute nonsense. You know, if you take some of the main analyses as to why we're so deeply divided, America's as deeply divided now as at any time since the 1850s, just before the Civil War. But why? Is it, as some say, the coastals against the heartlanders? That's a real problem, say, New York, California, against all that's understood in the salt of the earth, Midwest. That's a factor. Another factor, a huge one, is populists against the globalists. And you can see that sort of President Trump's forgotten people you know, very much on the side of nationalism and populism. And many of the elites are solidly against them, George Soros style. And that's a very genuine factor, which is a worldwide problem. But for me, there's a deeper cause of the division still. And that is the division between those who understand America, the republic, and above all, freedom, from the perspective of the American Revolution, 1776, and those who understand it from the perspective of the French Revolution, 1789, and the ideas that have flowed down from it since. So if you look at the American Revolution, it was largely, sadly not consistently, take slavery, it was largely biblical. The American Revolution is the child of the Reformation and the discovery of printing and things like that, whereas the French Revolution is the heir of the French Enlightenment, and it didn't flourish, actually, in France the french revolution gave rise to what jim billington calls the revolutionary faith that led to revolutionary nationalism on the one hand revolutionary socialism on the other hand eventually to communism but if you look at america today you can see it in the form of cultural marxism so ideas like postmodernism, political correctness tribal politics the sexual revolution the rage for socialism all these things They come from ideas that are alien to 1776 and are the heirs of 1789. Now, the trouble is, unlike the 1850s, in the 1850s, there was a Lincoln. And his significance was he addressed the better angels of the American character. There is no one doing that today. (laughs) The president's notion of making America great again, (MAGA). He never asked, and his followers never asked, what made America great in the first place? And who will explain and defend that? And sadly, that's not happening. So it's the progressive ideas on the radical side that are winning. And of course, through cultural Marxism, they've already won hegemony, as they call it, dominance in many of the ideas areas of America, the universities and colleges, press and media and so on. That, to me, is the deepest polarization in America. And uh, it'll take a great deal of civility to join that argument that someone's got to understand the division first.
0: It's obviously, you know, uh, savvy and, um, I guess, um, in vogue to uh, criticize and to look so negatively upon everything that's happening in our world, and sometimes it's hard to to see the light at the end of the tunnel or to see those bright spots. Uh, so w- what is giving you hope within um, not just the American culture and politics and the church today, but just, uh, I guess, at large in the other work you're involved in?
2: Well, I often put it that the generalizations can be very discouraging, but where there is hope is in the exceptions. And there are magnificent centers, islands, whatever you like to call it, of hope. And I could specify a whole number that mean a lot to me. The trouble is you play into a kind of American desire to be optimistic always. And I think as Christians, we're neither optimists nor pessimists. We are realists with hope, with Christian hope. And, you know, in my book, which I think you're coming to, Uh, I pick up one of the ideas from Reinhold Niebuhr, the idea that the end is not the end. In other words, the end can be understood in terms of the Latin word finis, end as ending, conclusion, full stop, period, whatever. And there are ends like that always in a fallen world. You know, the summer ends and you have the autumn and winter. We grow, we mature, we decline, we all die. There are ends, even... Kingdoms end and civilization end. We know that. But that's only one meaning of the word end in the scripture. The other is end as telos, the Greek word, for objective. End as purpose. And of course, in every end in the first sense in a fallen world, there is an end that our Lord has in the second sense. And so we as followers of Jesus always have hope. We look at our contemporary world, but we're looking over the horizon of history at God's greater hope, and where we're going gives strength to what we're doing. So we are people who are always hopeful, however dark the hour is, but not because we always think the glass is half full. That's purely psychological optimism, or we're American optimists or whatever. No, we're people of hope.
0: You have a new book out, Carpe Diem Redeemed, Seizing the Day, Discerning the Times. Um, This book is an indictment on slavery, not the servitude of humans under forced labor, but the fact of of self-enslavement. You wrote, We have less control over our time than ever, which is the real index of slavery. We are under the gun as never before, running, 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 and never catching up. If our own technologies have made us into slaves, we have done it to ourselves uh, let's start right there. Where, where was the foundation um, that began to take shape for you, and um, in, in what would become this book?
2: Well, I've always had, since you know the youth I described in China, a sort of sensitivity to times, the times in which we live, and therefore to time. And so I've been intrigued with that for a long, long time. And of course, growing up in a Buddhist culture, and then when I was in my 20s, I studied in Rishikesh under a guru, a Hindu guru, who is an Advaita supporter, you know, I've always been aware that the Eastern concept of time as a wheel, cyclical time, is very different from our Western time. So where did the Western time come from? Well, clearly from the Jewish and Christian scriptures, the Bible. And you have what Jews rightly call the covenantal view of time. Time has meaning, history's going somewhere. And as we come to know the Lord, we become, under him, covenantal partners in repairing and restoring this incredible universe he's created. And time has an incredible purpose when we discover our callings. Now, as I said, I grew up in the 60s, so I remember you know, all the plays. I remember Bertrand Russell teaching us and people like that. If you look at Russell's philosophy or, say, Samuel Beckett's plays, You have a very different view that the atheists have of time, what's called chronological time, purely tick-tock, 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 no significance, only a succession of moments. And you end up with really alienation over time. So I love the fact that the biblical, covenantal view of time is the deepest and richest. But of course, as you began, we're up against what's called fast life. In other words, in the advanced modern world, clock time, which is now incredibly precise, measured in nanoseconds and so on, is driving us all. And we've got to understand time as much as we're able and then live wisely and responsibly in our crazy modern world.
0: What was going on in your own personal life that um, you begin to kind of maybe see this self-enslavement, or was this uh, more of a social commentary?
2: Well, um, moving here to the United States, which, as I said, is the world's lead society, you know, I first came here in 1968, and I went from the East Coast to the West Coast, Harvard, to Berkeley. I met Mario Savio, who led the free speech movement, uh, Grace Slick and the Jefferson Airplane at Fillmore West. It was an extraordinary time. But among the many memories of my first impact of America, or the first impact of America on me, one of them was Americans were moving so fast that the family dining table had disappeared. In Europe, for better or worse, however busy people are, they normally, in in those days, met together as a family for supper or dinner. You know, my own family, I learned about my family heritage, not because I had a seminar over it or read a book about it, um, but simply hearing stories at supper time, over dinner. But when I came here, in six weeks of being with all sorts of families, East, West, and in the Midwest, and so on, I wasn't with a single family that stayed together for the whole dinner. Why? You know, the mother was the chauffeur to a sports game or a violin lesson or whatever it was. And the family dining table had become like a kind of pit stop in a a Grand Prix, in, out, fast food or whatever, and off you go. And I thought the cohesion, the place where there's a transmission of the heritage of the family had gone. And that's just one of the simple areas where you can see the impact of fast life. Now, we've got to pursue the biblical notion of Sabbath, the Sunday rest, to really bring some sanity and rest back into the craziness of modern fast life. You know, as you know, I, I, I quote in the book the old African saying, all Westerners have watches, Africans have time. Or the uh, saying from Asia, uh, Filipinos say that Westerners are people with a God on their wrists, look at their watches and shoot off. Although today it's a God in their hands, as it were, they look at their cell phone and then shoot off. In response to whatever the time is. But you can see we are victims of what's called fast life.
0: Now the book is centered around carpe diem, a phrase coined by the ancient Roman poet Quintus Horatius Flaccus. Um, I don't take you as a cliche kind of person. In fact, you stated in the book that the day is an axiom of faith, relationships, and a way of life, not a catchphrase for college dorm room posters. I wonder uh, why you chose this phrase as the basis for the book.
2: Well, the trigger, as you can see in the introduction, is a time I was coming back from Brussels to London on the Eurostar Express. And as you enter London, you come into St. Pancras station past a whole series of dilapidated Victorian buildings covered with graffiti. And what was discernible on one was the lines I've got there in the book. You only live once and it doesn't last. So live it up, drink it down, last it off, Uh, laugh it off, burn it at both ends you can't take it with you, you only live once and it was an extraordinarily blunt expression of the so-called YOLO philosophy and I thought to myself, you know, that's a bastard form of epicurus eat, drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die but people forget that the original formulation was you only live once, if then In other words, in this world of fast life, life is still short. It's brief, it's vulnerable. And the question is, how do we make the most of it? And you can see that for atheists and many others like that, carpe diem boils down to grab it while you can. Life is short, grab it while you can. In other words, ideas may be of spontaneity, but ideas essentially of the short term and the selfish. And nothing could be further from the richness and depth of the biblical view of time. Life is short, and we're challenged to make the most of it, and the question is how? And I think the answers we have in the Scriptures are simply wonderful.
0: This podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health. At the Center, we believe God has called and empowered congregations to change the world. For 25 years, center consultants, coaches, and educators have been supporting congregations, clergy, and lay leaders as they meet the ongoing challenges of congregational life, including training ministers to manage transition, helping congregations work through polarizing conflict, coaching clergy to discover and utilize their gifts for ministry, and assisting congregations in discerning God's call to future missions and ministry. Center consultants and coaches don't dispense expert advice. Instead, they recognize the uniqueness of each congregation and work to create the space needed for God's people to discern and follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. Please visit our website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about the center and find the help you need in order to thrive in missions and ministry. I have to confess that it has pretty much uh, not just made my day or my week, but probably my year to hear a proper British accent, say YOLO, and explain exactly <laughs> what that means. <laughs> now, you spoke a, a great deal in, in the book uh, about discernment. Uh, you wrote, the problem of discernment is that our modern view of relevance has been badly skewed because, once again, our modern fascination with the future is itself a bastard child of the clock culture that is at heart of our modern world. Um, talk to us what you mean by discernment. And then take us a little deeper into this bastard child of the clock.
2: Well, let's start with a second. Fast life is obvious. 24-7, 365, pressure. But the hidden tyranny of time lies in other places as well. And one of them is this notion that Owen Barfield, C.S. Lewis's friend, called chronological snobbery. Under the impact of technology and time, the idea that the latest must be greatest, the newer is always truer. Now, that is true of technology. You know, the phones get better and better and smarter and smarter and so on. But that's not true of many of the deepest things in life. And you can see the impact in politics. You know, the progressives anoint themselves as better simply because they call themselves progressives. But as G.K. Chesterton pointed out long ago, they never give you a standard by which to judge the progress. How are we to know they're not regressives? And often they are. Or you take the impact on theology. You know, the idea that revisionism is right because it's up to date with the latest and so on. Well, as Dean Ng pointed out a long time ago, he who marries the spirit of the age soon becomes a widower. And you can see how over 200 years, followers of Friedrich Schleiermacher, we've got to reach the cultured despisers of the gospel, have again and again ended up in irrelevance because they've married the faith to some passing fad in the times. And you can see that in academic theology. You can see it in passing fads in the evangelical church. And we should have a great sense that the truth of God is eternal. And we shouldn't be so crazy about the latest, greatest everything. So that progressivism and the fear of being on the wrong side of history and fear of missing out and so on leads us into crazy things which have led many in this church astray. Much of American Christian faith is trivial because it's become trendy and chased every new idea with skirts, which is absolutely insane.
0: What do you think are some of the more... uh popular, or trendy theological stances today that maybe the Church isn't getting right?
2: Well, I very rarely attack things by name, and anyone listening can figure out what they think. But again and again, we read attacks from the secular world on the triviality or the bizarreness of various expressions of the Church, and I would have to agree with them. And the trouble is, they're a betrayal of the Gospel, or a much more serious level, take, say, the crisis in many of the mainline churches. I'm an Anglican. And if we look at the Episcopal Church in America, it is the most radical betrayal of the gospel. You know what Sir and Kikugo called kissing judases Those who betray Jesus with a kiss of a new interpretation. And the Episcopal Church is probably history's most fundamental and extreme betrayal of orthodoxy and Jesus that the church has ever seen. And not surprisingly, it's withering. It's dwindling right in front of us. And the fact is that such revisionism is suicidal. And you have great sociologists like Peter Berger pointed out long ago how that sort of liberal revisionism is both institutionally and ideas-wise a form of Christian suicide and we should repent of all that sort of approach and take confidence that the church will prevail Christ has told us so and the gospel is eternally relevant and we needn't adapt it and accommodate it to this idea or that ideology or whatever in other words we need to get back to living out what it means to be people who are followers of Jesus unashamedly mm-hmm.
0: I'm certainly not of uh, the Anglican faith or tradition, um, but uh, somewhat of a, a church historian by two degrees. And I, you could make the argument that the the foundation of uh, you know the Church of England was a sense of revisionist history. You know, Henry creating separation, maybe not for theological reasons, but for marital reasons. So, you know, where do we find that sweet spot of you know, not the compromise of the gospel and and the innovation of the Church walking alongside the world as it changes.
2: I am no defender of Henry, and he was not the founder of the Church of England. You know, the Church of England is the fruit of the Reformation, and it was an attempt of reforming the Church of its day. But you take the Reformation, it wasn't perfect, but if you look back, say, to 380 when Theodosius became emperor and declared Rome officially Christian, far more important than Constantine. You know, as historians say, the church unwittingly, when it became the establishment, unwittingly copied Greek ideas and Roman institutions uncritically. So take the second, Roman institutions. The church copied Roman structures, which were hierarchical. And the famous criticism that all power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely, is, of course, by Lord Acton, who's a Catholic layman. And when he wrote that, he was actually critiquing his own church, because the church was hierarchical, and hierarchical power gets corrupted. And you can see it becomes corrupted, oppressive, and it led to, among other things, the Inquisition, the, the, the terrible treatment of the Jews, and horrendous notions such as Error has no rights. So the Reformation, for better or worse, went back to the Bible, not to Roman structures, and rediscovered through the Reformation, not consistently, not everywhere, but the notion, say, of covenant, which is at the heart of the Torah. And you can see how covenant became, through the Reformation, uh, the U.S. Constitution. It's one of the great contributions to freedom. So I'm not for a minute defending Henry VIII. He was a Catholic till he died. He just wanted the freedom to marry another woman, and the Catholic Church wouldn't let him. But he was not the founder of the Church of England. You know, I'm an unashamed evangelical, and we define our faith and our lives by going back as closely as possible to the teaching and the authority of Jesus himself. And, of course, when Francis of Assisi tried to do that in his time, the Pope called him evangelical. And that's actually the impulse behind the Reformation, as you may know. The Reformers didn't call themselves Protestants. That was their enemies calling them that. They called themselves evangelical. But sadly, the negative word Protestants, the protesters, stuck, and the central idea of evangelicalism faded, which is a great shame. And it needs to be rediscovered today.
0: Well, yes, I mean certainly Henry was not the founder of the Church of England, but it, it was an important catalyst, you know, for its its formation. So it's
2: it's a fascinating conversation of history. Yeah.
0: <laughs> it's a fascinating conversation maybe for another time around, you know, how culture acts as a catalyst for the church oftentimes in history, but let, let's get back to your book a bit. Um there's a quote in um in one of the chapters that really stuck with me. Um you wrote those who respond to the call of God are entrepreneurs of life. They follow the way of God and act in a time and history, while others aiming beyond uh, time and history. Knowing God, they act by faith in him, but with the hope that looks over the horizon of history and time. Such actions are real and decisive and consequential. Um, how How is this... Um, how has this quote, how has this kind of uh, statement you made here uh, been been relevant in your life? Uh, take us a little deeper
2: there. Well, for me, that was through the discovery of calling. You know, when I came to faith in the 60s, it's fair to say in England, John Stott himself said it later, that it was implicit in evangelical teaching that if you were all out for Jesus, truly dedicated, you basically had three choices, the ministry, the ministry evangelism uh, and and things like that and uh, you know I was dedicated to Christ so I thought that was the way I should go or the mission field of course and my parents were missionaries I knew that wasn't for me so I thought maybe evangelism and the ministry I was not ordained mercifully but I did spend nine months in a church and absolutely in my case hated it (laughs) I loved the church loved the people but I hated it. It wasn't me. It was a womb to tomb Christian subculture. Uh, I've described that elsewhere. But it was then when I discovered someone gave me, in my time of frustration, they gave me William Perkins' Treatise on Calling from the 16th century. And it just blew my mind. And it went back to the biblical notion of calling without all the specialization that the Catholic Church brought in and then evangelicalism had it. And the Reformation view of calling, which rediscovered the biblical view, is so liberating. God has given each of us different gifts. We are different people, and our calling is to exercise the personality we have and the gifts God has given us for him as a matter of calling throughout our lives. And that's the key to having a life that is still short, always vulnerable. My brothers died when they were under five. Life is still short, brief, and vulnerable, but to the level we have days on earth, we're able to enter them fully and fulfillingly through our calling.
0: The book has been out for a couple months now. Uh, what kind of response are you getting from your readers?
2: Actually, it's a surprisingly good response. <laughs> um, my previous book was much more political. Uh, take people longer to sort of grapple with the central ideas. But this one, I've had some wonderfully moving letters and emails and conversations. And uh, what surprised me when I gave it, I gave some of my first talks on it in Hong Kong to uh, a bank and various business groups. And there were people openly in tears because every, everyone knows in their heart of hearts that life is short. There's a moment when people say, I am I but I won't be around forever. And it won't be too long before the last trace of me is gone from the earth. And Very, very, very few people uh, leave a, a memory that will last more than a generation or two. And so people know that in their heart of hearts. So how do we tackle that? Do we try and live life as an immortality project, as if we're going to live forever? Or do we just deny it and pretend it's not there? Actually, if you get down to some of these deep things, they touch chords that resonate very profoundly. So I've been very heartened by the response in levels that I didn't expect.
0: What do you think your greatest hope is for your readers through the book?
2: Well, my concern is always that people who are followers of Jesus, who undoubtedly are the main readers of my books, will understand the times better, and through books like my book, The Call, will be able to respond to the times better and more faithfully in terms of their individual callings. But many of my books are written for the wider audience, too, out in the wider secular world. And I hope people who read those will say, look, I I thought the Christian faith was nonsensical or had nothing to say to the up-to-date world we're facing. In fact, it's extraordinarily relevant. The book I'm writing actually now, a sort of comprehensive view of freedom, is something that I think that every person who cares about the state of the world, I don't think they should read my book, but wrestle with the ideas because we're an extraordinary moment in history. Is it still possible to create a society that that justifies human dignity and freedom and justice and peace and stability and so on? Is that still possible or is it a pipe dream? Well, I think there are only certain ways to do it And many of the ways not to do it are very obvious in our time. And the world needs to grapple with some of these foundational issues. And I have never been more moved to the depth of my being with the profound relevance of the gospel and the Christian faith as a whole.
0: I know you've got something in the works. I, I know that because, um, you know, as soon as I got a call for the last call for liberty, I felt like I then quickly got a copy of Carpe Diem, Redeemed, in, in the mail. So what, what kind of project are you working on next?
2: Oh, <laughs> well, I, I don't generally go into the ones I'm working on. <laughs> but Carpe Diem came out fast because I, I picked up a book when I was home at Oxford, Uh, on the same topic by an Australian philosopher which is very very interesting but it was an atheist treatment and I thought my goodness if you understand carpe diem you have to look at the contrast between the eastern view the cyclical view I mentioned where time is a wheel and the secularist view where you simply have clock time tick tock tick tock and so on and then the Jewish and Christian biblical view the covenantal view and He had no sense of that at all. So I came back and I wrote Carpe Diem in a couple of months. So it's relatively fast, although I've been thinking on it for much of my life. But it was much more sort of fun than the heaviness of The Last Call for Liberty, which was truly the best thing I could write, and how I see the American crisis today, which is very, very challenging and very, very dark. And living in Washington, you see, well, I call it with my wife, the horror of great darkness. I'm not apocalyptic or alarmist, but you can see wickedness, evil, corruption. And you know the old saying, the worst is the corruption of the best. How on earth did national socialism grow out of the heartland of Germany, which was the Reformation country, which is the most civilized, cultural, best educated country in the world? And it produced Hitler. In other words, the worst comes from the corruption of the best. And you can see things forming in America today. So America has been so blessed by God. And yet today there are ideas germinating here that are in the lead of some of the worst trends of the whole world. And they need to be stopped here by God's grace.
0: I guess probably last and most pressing question. You've been in America uh, since the nineteen sixties. Have you finally uh, converted what? that uh, that football is football and not soccer?
2: <laughs> no. <laughs> still, my, team, my team is Arsenal. There is no question that <laughs> uh, football, soccer, is the most universal game played in the world. And if you take the some, um, you don't have to look at things like concussion. But just the expense of American football, all the equipment you need and the size of the teams, it's simply highly complicated. Uh, and so on. So it will never overtake football, soccer as being the world's leading game. But God bless you if you think the opposite.
0: <laughs> well, my only two critiques is we need more definite and, uh, you know, a definition of what extra time is. And let's go ahead and and thin out the field just a little bit. You'll have a little bit more high-scoring games. Um, (laughs) That's true. Well, if you want to stay connected with Oz, you can visit ozguinness.com. Of course, go out and purchase Carpe Diem Redeem wherever books are sold. Uh, Oz, thank you for challenging us to respond to God's calling to become entrepreneurs of life. And thank you for giving us hope in the exceptions.
2: Well, a real pleasure to be with you. God bless and all who listen to you. Thank you.
1: Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for Conversations That Matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests
0: This podcast is supported by Living Earth Ceramics. Living Earth Ceramics has been on Etsy, bringing pottery to you for almost 10 years, and has over 20 years of pottery experience. The focus is not only creating pieces that help bring lasting memories to your community and your life and your family through pottery, but also the support of charitable donations to organizations in need. Living Earth Ceramics created an amplifier in 2011 to help those with hearing loss, like the owner herself other items have included mugs, serving ware, custom plates, and orders for newlyweds and holiday memories, gallery items and custom requests for communal pieces to religious organizations. Living Earth Ceramics shop on Etsy offers 10% discount to orders using the coupon code CBF Conversations. That's one word, CBF Conversations, with the free shipping now available to the continental United States. Living Earth Ceramics proudly supports our message of hope and love for all people. For more information, visit etsy.com backslash shop backslash Living Earth Ceramics. Well, that's it. That's our conversation. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites, fuller.edu and healthychurch.org. Check out cbf.net for information about our church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, chaplains, and much more. Oh, and uh, one more thing. I don't think we've mentioned it on the podcast before, but visit cbf.net backslash podcast support for ways that you can contribute to the CBF podcast conversations and get some pretty cool stuff in return.